Thank you. Um, kids, yes, and this is not working. Kids, um, Children's Church, there it is. Uh, you guys can be dismissed this time as well. Hey, thank you for you older people not running out like them. I thought they've heard of me before and they're running away. It's so good to be back with you. I vaguely remember being here with you about a year ago this time. I say vaguely because I was just getting over COVID, if you remember. So I don't remember a lot about that. So I'm sorry for anything I may have done or said that was out of place. And an amen if there was something that God actually used me to say or share that uh, helped. It was great to get the more than nickel tour of what God has done through you in, in this facility to walk around and to not only see the uh, adjustments and uh, improvements in the building, but to hear of how God is using this campus to reach this community. And that's the better part of it, isn't it? That uh, God wants to use us for his honor and glory. So this is my last official time to represent the MARBC here at this church. You have faithfully supported us both by way of financial support and prayer for many, many years. And it's been our blessing uh, during our time with the MARBC to get notes from your pastors saying that uh, we're going to add you to support, we're going to increase your support, and then to be invited to help you as you've thought strategically about how you can, in an incarnational way, uh, interact with your community for the glory of God. And so we're thankful for that. Sharon and I are just coming off a week where we were in Toledo, Ohio, for the first part of the week uh, to help lead the Tri-State Associations Conference, which is uh, is something that uh, we helped start back in 2012. Um, I talked with uh, my counterpart in Ohio at the time to say, what about having a joint conference between Ohio and Michigan where we would meet together, bring in some uh, speakers who could uh, enrich both of our state associations and uh, help us to kind of uh, share together in terms of ministry strategy. So um, kind of it was, a, it was a, uh, just two states at the, at the first one, and uh, someone came up with the idea as we first started the first session, you know, taking Ohio and Michigan and taking those two little uh, letters together, it was, it was be, uh, pegged the Oh My Conference, and it was really Oh My in many ways. And then Indiana thought they'd get in on the deal with us, so the last two times we've had Indiana. So I was thinking, how do you, how do you put that together? Because now you have I-N, and I tried every different way, looking at the dictionary, at the SARS, how can you come up with the word, and you can't. But if you take the first letter of each of those states, you still come up with, oh my. So that's what we did. And it was a great, uh, great Monday through Wednesday conference and God greatly blessed. And uh, one of our joys and an honor was to share with our pastors and representatives from our church one last time in what we call our business sessions, more of a reporting and encouraging time. And um, I actually did not distribute my uh, final report uh, to them for our ministry because I didn't want them reading it because I wanted to share a couple things from it. And that's what I want to do with you this morning, just to give you a little bit of a background of how we feel as uh, God leads us to wrap up 16 years with you. And since we're one of your missionaries, I thought it'd be appropriate this morning to do that before we get into God's word. But I'm going to tell you where, where we're going to go in God's word, because my guess is you're going to have to dust this passage off 
because it's one of those flyby texts that we don't look at often. Because normally, if you read through the Bible in one year, it's right around Christmas time that you get to this passage, and you think, "Oh, good, it's a short, it's a short text." So we'll just quickly read through it and be done with the day. Second John. So find the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, and go uh, three books to the left of that, and you'll find Second John, and that's where we'll be in a couple of minutes. My comments in the report and to our uh, constituency on Tuesday afternoon was the fact that little did Sharon and I know uh, that God was preparing a great joy ride for us when 30 years ago this month, I received a phone call, actually it was a voicemail, uh, on a Saturday, we were just coming back from Cedarville for um, our 15th class reunion. So you can do the math and figure out what we just celebrated as a reunion just a couple of weekends ago at Cedarville. But it was our 15-year reunion, and we got home that Saturday night, and uh, I listened to our answer machine. Remember those? Now you just have smartphones and things. So you don't have the old clunky answer machine. They have to push a button and push rewind and all of that. So on the answering machine was this man from Grand Rapids, Michigan, called Dr. Wilbert W. Welch, for those of you who remember him. And he is telling me that someone had recommended that he give me a call because the church that Dr. Welch was, the, it was serving as interim pastor, uh, this group felt that I might be someone good that could come and help them. They've been through some really rough times and... Uh, Needed, needed some guidance and direction to help them get kind of stabilized again and then move forward with growth. And, um, you know, living in Northeast Ohio, being a Buckeye, you know, is like, well, that sounds really attractive, Dr. Welch. I'm thinking this. I'm not saying this to him, but I'm thinking, why? Why, God, would you want me to do this? I, this can't be your will. And it wasn't so much because we'd be leaving Ohio and moving to Michigan I'm thinking Grand Rapids, and some of you have been there. It's a, it's a nice city, but the only thing I knew about Grand Rapids is what I heard through the grapevine. City of churches, churches on every block, which is a lie, by the way. It's a city on every half block. And I'm thinking, God, if you want me to move to Michigan, that's fine if it's your will, but send me somewhere where there aren't so many churches, you know, that they really need to hear the gospel message and whatever. But God had other plans, so we ended up there. And then we were there having a great time with our church at North Park. And then in uh, 2015, early 2000, or 2005, 2006, this uh, group of men representing the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches came to us and said, we believe that God might want you to be our next uh, state rep at that time. We call it ministry director now. And I looked at them, and I did audibly say this to them, why? I don't understand why you'd want me to do this and why you'd even think we would be qualified. I said, you do know I grew up in Ohio. We moved to Michigan 14 years ago, and really all we've done is just stayed in Grand Rapids because God wanted us to pastor this church. So why? And they said, well, why don't you tell us why? And I'm looking at them. This is the weirdest interview I've ever had in my life. Why do you want me to tell you? So they said, just see what you can come up with. So I sat down over the next couple of weeks as we were praying about it, and I wrote down a list of nine things that I thought, okay, here are some reasons why, God, you may want us to do this. But that was during the time when uh, especially one particular comedian on late night TV had his top ten list. Do you remember him? So I thought, i got to come up with ten. So here's number 10. If the MERBC can call a Buckeye to be their state representative, 
It will demonstrate that true reconciliation is provided through Christ for every tribe and language and people and nation. (laughs) Sounds really spiritual, doesn't it? And so we did, and God did. He has blessed over these 16 years now with this. So here we are. And I thought it'd be appropriate, and I shared this with Sharon just to make sure that she could read it and say, yeah, that fits well. So if I would summarize our time with the MARBC, this is what we've learned in 16 years serving the Lord and his church in the state of Michigan. Number one, we're not only called out for being Buckeyes, but we're also called out and marked for being trolls. Number two, the Upper Peninsula is not only a beautiful place, but it is also filled with wonderful, committed Christians, despite their opinion of trolls, who love their region and want to reach it with the gospel message. Number three, Michigan is not a one-size-fits-all state when it comes to people, culture, or even ministry style. Number four, you can't judge a book by its cover, And you can't judge the love or character of a church by the exterior of its building or the place where it is located. I never had heard of Orangeville. Never once until I moved to Michigan. I wanted to go squeeze oranges for my juice. Found out that doesn't happen around here. But I found out there's a lot of reasons to love this community because of a special church that Christ has planted here. Number five, many people with the largest ministry hearts serve God faithfully in small and obscure locations. Number six, some of the best servants of God are not in professional ministry positions, but serve voluntarily as Sunday school teachers, Awana leaders, church greeters, nursery workers, ushers, and deacons. Number seven, who needs a map? When you have a left hand, that can look like the UP and a right hand with a thumb that looks like the lower peninsula. I can tell you anywhere I'm going and you can tell me where you live without needing a map. Number eight, making a joyful noise unto the Lord means different things to different folks and God still looks at their heart rather than the outward appearance or the instrumentation. Number nine, the local church was not established by Jesus to exist on its own. There is great value and tremendous joy when churches partner together and God gets the glory. And number 10. And yes, by his grace and for his glory, God can use a couple of worthless nuts, also known as Buckeyes, combined with a bunch of redeemed but slightly crazy people in that state up north to impact that state with the glorious gospel of God's grace. Thank you, Orangeville Baptist Church. You're a major part of our lives personally as a couple. You are a major component in our state association. And we give God glory for you. And thank you for your partnership. A couple of things that came up in our meeting that I want you to know about, and I shared a little bit about this transition process when I was with you last year, but I honestly can't remember what all I shared. But I do know I shared that we were going to move from one person in my role to a ministry team, and that is indeed has taken shape and is, is, is uh, ready to be implemented January 1st when we finish on December 31st. Uh, one of the things we are doing, we are still going to be exist- in existence as the Michigan Association of Regular Baptist Churches, but 
One of the things the last several years I've used as kind of the byline of what we do through our association is that the MERBC exists to connect churches with one another and their communities with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the moniker that we're going to use just to explain ourselves around the state is that we are the Bridge Fellowship. We are a, a ministry that connects people with the gospel, a ministry that connects churches together in sharing the gospel with others. And so uh, that's what we're moving uh, forward as an association to do in the days ahead. The uh, churches uh, in our uh, seven regions of our state, uh, from the UP all the way down to southern Michigan, uh, will be uh, formatted in a very strategic way, even more so than what we've been doing during our time leading the uh, ministry. Uh, that strategic plan sees a ministry director that oversees a team of pastors who now have been approved by their local churches to um, minister uh, on average four to six weeks to help in some specific areas that I identified to them are things that really one person needs to focus on totally, like helping churches in crisis, like biblical counseling, like um, pastoral uh, transitions and uh, the search process. And so we have uh, pastors in our state that will be overseeing those four areas, which we call leadership development pastoral and church leadership relationships, church health, and the fourth, which we haven't yet done this year because of a, uh, the financial need to raise money for this, is in the area of communications. They will oversee our website. They will deal with our communication processes, the e-newsletter that we do, and things like that. But the biggest thing about all of this is that we can become much more focused on regionally strengthening our state together, and there will be pastors from every region that will work with these four men uh, in specific areas of ministry to make sure that we are uh, doing our best to be able to interact with others in our state for the glory of God and with the gospel of God's grace. I just want to again thank you, Sharon and I thank you, for your love and your encouragement to us. Um, you will, uh, if you pick up one of our reports, you'll see what is next for us. We are going to slow down. We're not, no one retires if they're a believer. Retirement plan is glorious, and it's in the presence of the Lord in heaven. And uh, so we look forward to that. But in the meantime, we'll just slow the pace down a little bit, not do all the administrative things we've been doing. Uh, we still have a passion for especially church revitalization. I'll still do some uh, church uh, coaching and pastoral coaching. And uh, Sharon and I look forward to linking in more so to a local church again and just to encourage pastors in that church and uh, be closer to our only child, Allison, and our son-in-law, Taylor. They're a wonderful couple. But to have the greatest kids, our grandkids, and that's what we really, they don't know this, so you have to edit this out if you're recording this. Uh, we're going to move near our five grandkids as well, and we look forward to that. Second John. Second John is a book of the Bible that a lot of times you won't spend a lot of time in because if you know the five different books of the New Testament that the Apostle John has written, we spend a lot of time, and, and rightly so, uh, with the first and last uh, books that John has shared that are in, in the New Testament. First, the Gospel of John, and obviously that is so critical to our understanding of the, of the incarnational ministry of Jesus Christ and certainly is foundational to our understanding of what uh, the Gospel is all about, what our faith is all about. I'm thankful that as a senior in high school, uh, right after the new year, 
that uh, a pastor came to our home after my mom had attended church at a little Baptist church in our hometown. And uh, as I'm listening to him, he shares the gospel. He talks about this guy named John, and he used all of these equations. I didn't know anything about what he was talking about, but every time he mentioned the name John, he had all these numbers that were attached to it. And not being exposed to a church where you actually open the Word of God, uh, I did have a little red Bible on my shelf, my bookshelf, and uh, the pastor asked me, would, Ken, would you like to receive Christ as Savior? Would you like to know more so that, you could, uh, so that his saving grace could be a part of your life? And I, I said, no, nah, you know, I'm a senior in high school. I'm a rebellious teenager. Rebellious teenagers don't do things like that. But actually what I wanted to do was I wanted to check him out. So that night I went up to my bedroom. I found that little red Bible, and I knew where to find the Gospel of John. And then as I'm starting to read through it, ah, that's what all these numbers are about, because every little line has these numbers attached to it. So I could not remember the number formulas that he had been giving that night, so I just read the entire Gospel of John that night. Boy, did I learn a lot. I learned a lot about Christ and a lot about me. And it was that night at my bedside, the end of January, 1973, that I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he became the Lord of my life, and it's been a wonderful walk with him. That's the Gospel of John. And then you come to the end of the Bible, and I told you to turn left from the book of Revelation. That's the last book that John wrote, and uh, that's certainly so significant to understand how everything fits together, even into eternity future. But then there's these three books that are close to the book of Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, these little letters that, that, uh, that God directed John to write. And the second and third letter are very small, and they kind of in similar fashion to the first letter address a particular issue. My premise to you today is if John were living right now, this little letter called 2nd John would probably have been written and posted as a blog post on the Internet. Because in many ways, what John is sharing here is just a very quick summary of the passion and the burden of his heart. He's living at the end of the first century. He's watched the church from its infancy. He was there in the upper room when on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God came upon those who were praying there and birthed the baby church. He was there. He has watched as the church first started in Jerusalem and, and flourished in Jerusalem. And then because of the dispersion as a result of the persecution of the church by Rome and uh, those uh, Jewish leaders that wanted to try to stamp, stamp out the church, they're dispersed all over Asia Minor. And, and John is the last of the apostles still alive and has watched that. And so he writes this little letter, which I think could have been a blog post if it were a contemporary to today, to just in many ways summarize, if you don't have time or you're in a church that hasn't had access to what I've written in these other larger volumes, here's something I want to share with you. And he starts out here in this little letter saying to the, the elder, that's John, to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. 
Let's just quickly deal with one issue, and that is who, who is the uh, elect lady? I already told you who the elder is. That's John, the one writing this particular little letter. Um, the elect lady, there's debate. It's not a big issue, but it's a debate. Is this a real lady, one lady and her children, or does this represent the church? Because often in Scripture, uh, in Ephesians and other places, the church obviously is called the bride of Christ, so that's a, a feminine uh, perspective. Um, uh, and, and you just name it. There's so many ways in which the church is alluded to as a lady, and then the children would be members of that particular gathering. And um, next week, when Jim Jeffrey, a wonderful good friend of mine, is here, he and Andrew are going to wrestle on the platform to decide once and for all, is this a person and her kids, or is this a church and its members? And I don't know which side you're going to take, Andrew, and you may not have known about that, but pa- Doctor, uh, Pastor Jeffrey and Andrew are going to wrestle over that and come once and for all to a conclusion, and I can't wait to hear it. But it really doesn't matter to the context of what's being shared here. The issue is the truth and how truth is bathed in and couched in godly love. That's the real issue here that he writes about. And he's going to emphasize it many, many different times. And it's not truth in terms of just a theological premise or something that we would, uh, that we would uh, kind of digest and think over and ruminate over. But it's truth that is lived out in the lives of the people there. And I think there are many different clues in this little blog post that he shares that tells us that's what John's intention is, which in many ways reflects what he talks about in 1 John and 2 John, or excuse me, 1 John and 3 John as well. I, I think that the biggest issue, and we are hearing all about issues right now, I mean the news media... Uh, advertisements, everything is about, you know, your truth, my truth, their truth, what is truth, all these things. And we've got all kinds of issues or propositions in different states that are on the ballot right now. I guess, if anything, we would agree that we're facing a culture war and cultural issues that, that are very significant. But more so, we are facing a spiritual issue that is, just has pervaded society. And so you have values that are misplaced or they're completely backward of what we would have been trained to understand. Even in culture, let alone what we believe and know to be true from the word of God. And so it is a very challenging time. It'd be a very easy time for us to kind of throw up our hands and say, Lord, just come. And I, I probably every day you're like me, you probably say that. But in that, we also recognize that just like in the time in which the apostles lived and in the time in which uh, John is writing this little letter, I mean, it was worse then than it is now. They were hoping for the return of the Lord, but in the meantime, they recognized their calling in Christ towards incarnational ministry. The greatest calling was with the love of Christ compelling them They defend the truth. And it's not just kind of digging your heels in the ground like an offensive lineman to keep people from getting the quarterback. It's not that. We often just think, oh, we're just supposed to throw Bible verses at people to tell them why we believe what we believe. 
But it's not just that. We live it out in our lives so that by our lives people see that is the truth. That's the truth that sets captive hearts free and enables us through Christ Jesus to live our lives in ways that are, are glorifying to God and beneficial to not only us but everyone around us because we're living, we're living testaments of the truth of Jesus Christ. But the problem is... Truth has been diluted, distorted, has been flipped upside down in our culture. Uh, John MacArthur writes it this way. Remember the AIDS epidemic, and I remember that very well back in the 80s when I was pastoring in Northeast Ohio, and none of us knew what it was like, and I had to go visit someone in the intensive care unit, and they stopped me at the door going into the ICU. And even though I wasn't visiting someone who was afflicted with AIDS, I had to wear an outfit kind of like what a lot of people had to wear during the COVID season. And I want to tell you, it, it was frightening because we had no idea what this was. Uh, at that point, you didn't really know a lot of how it is contracted. And so it was a scary thing. But here's what MacArthur writes about it that I think is so important for us as we appreciate what is being shared in this text. He says, acquired immune deficiency syndrome. That's what the letters A-I-D-S stand for. It's literally where your immune system doesn't work, and so you are vulnerable to die because of the hundred plus various diseases that you might get as a result of your immune system being down. And he writes in a great illustration, the contemporary church has the same deficiency when it ignores or misappropriates the word of God. The lack of biblical discernment means that the the church lacks immunity and therefore can die from a hundred different heresies that an individual believer or a church might contract. And we see that in full scale across this globe today. We see it in our churches. This wokeness, as it's called as a label, has infiltrated in so many different areas. It's caused churches to split. It has invaded many, even what we would consider in the past, Bible colleges and seminaries. And I'm not here to hammer on them. I'm here to talk to us today through the word of God to say, we must make sure, especially in a time where we emphasize the mission of the local church during this month here in Orangeville, we must be committed to and convicted by the word of God, not only to embrace it and believe it, but to live it out. One of the things that frankly, honestly frustrates me over the last 16 years is going to various local churches or even visiting church websites, and the advertising on the website does not fit what you see when you're in person. And my thought is, if that impacts me, and I consider myself a rather stable Christian in terms of my walk with God and my understanding of the Word and my appreciation of how church is to live out its life, uh, sometimes we put all these wonderful pictures of, you know, families and all these things, and then you get there and it's like, where are they at? You know, we, we try to put lipstick on the pig sometimes when we're not really that glamorous. Let's just live out the truth. Let's live it out. Sometimes we talk about all these things that we believe, and yet maybe on Sunday... We're all together and we're all nodding our heads or saying amen. And some of you are doing that while I've been sharing this intro. 
But then you meet someone on Tuesday afternoon, and it's like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Didn't I see you at Orangeville Baptist Church Sunday morning? And yet what you hear from them, uh, even what you see expressed out of their emotions when the first time some issue comes along, and it's like, God's rocked my world. I don't know what to do. And I'm just like, wait a minute. What happened to this? What happened to the Word of God? What happened to the fact that in all seasons, in all situations of life, God's in control? Or, you know, it's you know the other end of the spectrum. We're, we're walking along, and we're so happy and excited, and it's all about me. Look what I did. Look what happened to me. Look at all the things that, that uh, you know, luckily, I hate that word, luckily happened to me. Instead of saying, look at what God has chosen to bless me with or bless us with in our lives. So I needed to share that before we dig into some of the principles uh, of, of this text. Just to remind you, before we kind of, in a snobbish way, look down our long Baptist noses at others to say, well, you know, it's all about, yeah, can you give it to them, meaning those outside. I'm talking about us. John's talking about us. He says, dear elect lady and your children, whom I love in the truth, grace, mercy, and peace be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Now, that's about a third of the letter right there. But what he's going to share, he prefaced with that because now he's going to dig into some details that will help to truly examine their hearts as to whether or not what he just said in verse 3, that they're doing it in truth and love, is actually accurate about their lives now. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commended by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So, you know, he, he... commends them, first of all, for walking in the truth, or at least some of the children were walking in the truth. This is an honest statement, isn't it? I look out on this congregation today. I know some of you fairly well. At least I recognize some of your faces. By the way, you've gotten a year older. I don't know what happened, but it's there, you know. But I I know some of you personally. I know some of you by seeing you, and um, some I don't know at all. But let's just be honest, and it's true here today. Some of you may have just recently come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, just like I did as a senior in high school. Some of you have been around the block a couple of times. Some of you have been around the block many, many times. And maybe like me, you've you've almost reached a half century in your walk with God as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so in this statement, he's not necessarily condemning some who aren't as clear-cut in the way in which they walk in the truth. They might be young believers, for one. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt for that. I mean, if you would have asked me that night in January in 1973 to rehearse the doctrines of the faith, first of all, I would look at you cross-eyed and said, I don't even know what you're talking about. Secondly, I couldn't have even rehearsed beyond what I knew that night that the Spirit of God helped me to understand. And that is, I was a lost sinner, dead, headed to hell, and I couldn't do anything to change that. Only Jesus could, and he did at Calvary. And I accepted his work on my behalf, recognizing as well that he proved that power by the power of his resurrection, and I was guaranteed of eternal life and an eternity with him. 
That's about all I can. And I, would have, I wouldn't have been as articulate as I was right there. Wasn't very articulate at all, but better than what I would have done on a January night in 1973. So some of you are trying. You're really listening. You're really wanting to grow, but there's only so much you can take in at a time. I'm glad, he says, that some of you are walking in the truth, and it's a gradual thing. I'm glad as well, he says, that you are walking in truth and love, but it is a growing phenomenon. Frankly, I think more so this, for us in today's Christian world, would in many ways point the finger at those of us who walked around the block a few times, and now our walk has gotten stale and crusty. We think we know it all. We may know a lot, but how much of that are we actually allowing God to apply in our lives, not based upon where we were in 1985 or 1992 or 2003 or even 2021. And we do. We kind of put it in cruise control if we're honest and we just coast. And John is saying here, walking in truth is not just about having an encyclopedia of biblical knowledge in our brains that when someone wants a quick Bible drill answer, we can just spit it out. It's about the way in which it impacts our lives for every phase and every season that we walk through, both as a local church, because he, uh, he, he addresses them in the plural, so it's about all of them, and then he just in some ways identifies individual ones by saying some of you. So it's a both and. But this truth is something that should continually be growing. Now, um, Merlin and I are really good friends. Merlin and Nancy have just been a blessing to us over the years, and we both went to the same college and the same seminary. And I don't know if Dr. Boyer, was Dr. Boyer at Grace Seminary when you were there, but but I had Dr. Boyer for uh, Greek, especially Greek exegesis of what they call the Johannine epistles, the, the, the ones written by John. That's what that fancy title means, okay? So he gave a great illustration, actually, while we were in 1 John, but he said it would work in the other two letters that John wrote at the end of the New Testament. He said, when you look down at what John is describing both in 1 John and here, it would almost be like it's a circle. There's a circular approach to the way in which you walk with God. You're walking in that circle, gaining everything that you can. But he said, if you look at it from the side, it's not a circle. And it's great that we're in Michigan because if you go to any coastline, one of the things you find on coastlines frequently in Michigan, and I forget how many there are, one of you probably could tell me right now, but there are lighthouses. Any of you ever been to a Michigan lighthouse? Okay. And there's at least two of them, okay? So, but a lot of lighthouses on the outside have this, this spiral staircase, and you keep going around it until you get up to the top by where the light is, and you can look out and you can see off into the horizon on whatever body of water you're looking at. And you can look back to the shoreline and you can see a little bit of the topography of the land there. Dr. Boyer said what John is describing here by the way and the words in which he uses is this. It's not that you're just walking around in circles as a Christian for however long you have on this planet until he calls you home. It's like you're walking around with God, but in the meantime, you're moving closer and closer to him and to his truth. Um, next time you use a pen, and you, you think of the spring that locks that pen in place, just look at a spring, and, and that too would describe what he's talking about here. Am I growing? Am I just knowing facts? And so, yeah, I can, I can list the facts, but I'm just really, I really am just kind of walking in a circle aimlessly. 
like a dog attached to a chain with a stake. And he keeps walking around. Pretty soon, all the grass is, is gone, and you just got a bunch of dusty or muddy dirt, depending on, on the season. That's not what should happen for us as believers, nor us as a church. We should be growing to the point that that spiral growth continues to keep us growing closer to God and also more effective in the way in which we shine the light on our community. That's incarnational ministry. And so he says here, I'm not telling you anything new. You've known this from, we've known this from the beginning. Well, this isn't Genesis 1-1 he's talking about. This is John. He wrote the gospel of John. And John was one of the ones with Jesus when Jesus says, I'm, I'm giving you this new commandment that you love one another, right? And then Jesus would even go on further to talk not just about the great commission, but the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second's like it. What is it, class? Fellow um, lighthouse climbers, you shall. Oh, Pastor, you got a lot of work to do here. <laughs> I could hear my wife. I could hear a couple other people kind of droning there. But the second one is like, and it is, you shall love your neighbor as you love who? Yourself. Yourself. Ah, I can't love my neighbor properly in a spiritual context unless I'm first. Loving myself, which sounds rather selfish, self-centered, and everything against what the gospel preaches. But no, you love yourself the way that God loves you, the way that God sees you. Romans 5.8. Here's how God loves us. Even while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though there's nothing for us to offer, he says, I'm going to save them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to place them into my body so that they can effectively serve me. And then, because they're growing on the spiral staircase of God's word and God's truth, they can take my love and interact with others by loving their neighbors. Which means at times it puts us in awkward situations because there are times when... What my neighbor across the street believes, and I think last year I did talk about our neighbor across the street and the little sign they had there with the multicolored sentences that say, in this house we believe this and that and everything else, which makes me wonder sometimes, you know, i got to be kind of, you know, that kind of bothers me a little bit. So how do I display the love of Christ? And so i got to be careful that as I do it, I, I bathe that truth in the love of Christ. It's very, very important. So he takes them then from this big idea that churches and Christians must embrace what I call truth-based love to then talk about how that dynamic duo of truth and love then are played out in the way in which we interact with our world today. And that's verses 7 through the rest of the letter. We don't have time to go into detail on it, but I do want to hit highlights because this is where you and I live today in a culture that uses all these pronouns, and I'm not getting into those other new pronouns that I'm trying to come up with, but I'm talking about the pronouns about your truth, my truth, their truth, this truth, whatever, where we take truth off of the eternal platform that Christ and God has placed it and try to downsize it and manipulate it into something that then agrees with my biases and my opinions. And by the way, here's something I'd say to you as we get into this. If there are still principles of the truth of God that at times don't make you uncomfortable, then there's a problem with you. 
Because the truth of God takes us out of our comfort zones and puts us into places where only God could be glorified if you do it right. And so there are cultures that, frankly, scare me to death. I was scared to death when I had to put that suit on to go into ICU unit because they didn't know what this AIDS thing was all about and how you got it. So we're going to protect you, Mr. Pastor, as you come in to visit your uh, parishioner, as they would call it, in that particular unit. There are, there are people groups and there are lifestyles that, frankly, are absolutely frightening. That if you try to do it on your own, in your own flesh, or even with your own ingenuity and logic, it, it is frightening. But it's a love of Christ, as Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, that compels us, that thrusts us out into our community so that it, truth and love we're able to share effectively. That's incarnational ministry. That's defending the truth, not just by gathering on a Sunday morning, and this is important what we're doing here in a worship service. And it is important, and it's biblical. But that's not all God's called us to do, to soak it up and then go out and forget about it for a week until we come back again. We soak it up here so that we can go out like sponges and squeeze it out to be a refreshment to the people around us who are lost and struggling and bankrupt spiritually. And so we examine ourselves. He says in verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such one as the deceiver and the antichrist. So watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God, but whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, quickly, here are some things we need to understand and appreciate so that we're not just going out kind of lovey-dovey without having any basis of the truth. And nor do we go out with a bunch of truth that's like sandpaper and say, here, I'm going to clean you up and then just be abrasive in the way that we do it. It's a balance. It's, it's, a, it's a combination. It is, in many ways, the dynamic duo that is a part of what John is talking about here. So first of all, he mentions in verse 7 and reminds us that truth exposes apostasy. That's a principle. Write it down. It'll help you. That Just remember, it's truth. Living out the truth. Declaring the truth that exposes what is error, what is apostasy. And so he says, as you go out, you've got to be careful and recognize there are many deceivers that have gone out into the world that do not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice the words there, in the flesh. Now, that was really critical at the end of the first century. I mean, the church isn't even 100 years old, and there's already these heretics, these apostates, that are going out and saying, well, yeah, I know some people say they were with Jesus. This John guy would be one of them. But, but it was just a figment of their imagination. He just appeared as a spirit. There was no body. Uh, isn't, it an, isn't it an accident at all that John, at the end of his letter, talks about this guy named Thomas, and he invites, Jesus invites Thomas to come, and what does he invite him to do? Touch him. Put your fingers here where the spikes went into my hands. Look, here's, here's where the spear went into my side. Flesh and blood. Is it an accident that it's John who writes about the campfire after Jesus is resurrected and meets with them and they're sitting there eating fish and chips? And Jesus eats? But is it any wonder then that it also talks about Jesus walking through walls because he's a spirit as well? 
And there were people that were trying to say, ah, you know, and, and when you say Jesus didn't come in the flesh, guess what you negate? You, you negate the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God that we sang about. In this service, we sang about the Lamb of God for sinners slain. They were, they were saying that's, not, that's, that's false. And so we who incarnate the truth of God in our communities and in our world, we must clearly declare, and especially at this time of year, as we get into a season that's anything but Christ-focused, to declare the glories of his grace in coming to us in that way. Uh, the second thing he talks about is in verse 8, and that is that an adherence to biblical truth safeguards our spiritual reward. You're going to go through hardship. There are going to be people that are going to literally bang you upside the head for saying what we would declare from the word of God. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to scoff at you. You might even go to jail for it. You might be ostracized from your community. You could lose your job over it. In some countries, you could be put to death for it. Don't lose heart. You keep going around that spiral staircase as you walk with God because there's a guarantee of a wonderful reward that is waiting for you in glory. Don't let the circumstances of human existence on this earth keep you from pressing on towards that which is greater, which God has, has declared he will give to you in glory. And that's the church. We're being, we've been given the mystery of godliness to declare to our world, to our community. We're the pillar and the ground of the truth, Paul tells Timothy in his uh, two letters uh, that he wrote to Timothy as a pastor. Don't forget it, Timothy. We're to preach the word. We're to be diligent in season and out of season. That's our calling. That's our joy as well as our goal. Verse 9, he goes on to say, thirdly, that truth reveals our true spiritual relationship with God. And with the church. He says, everyone who goes on out ahead and does, does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, there's a word picture going on here. So here's what is happening. It happens in our contemporary world as well. There are some who say, aha, I've discovered something new. It's amazing to me, and I've had some pastors who've called me and said, what do you know about this? And they'll talk about something that someone has discovered in the last 20 years that for the last almost 2,000 years, no one saw in the word of God. And I've said, you know, just let's, let's just for a couple minutes just start listing the names of apostles. So we list those because they're easy to remember. And then let's remember some of the early church fathers who, even if they weren't connected with Jesus or the disciples themselves, they were like one generation removed from them. And all the way through until here we are in 2022. And wow, someone 20 years ago is now discovering something that, voila, no one else ever knew about in all of Christianity. So what they do is they, there's a picture of someone who has been with the group for a little while, and now they're running out ahead, almost like a Judas. Because Judas is with them in the upper room, and all of a sudden he runs out to go with his, his coins to betray the Lord. So they go out uh, way ahead because they don't want the truth to get there first. So they run way out ahead over here, and they say, hey, come here, I've got to tell you something. You know, you may hear something later on that isn't true, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inform you so that you're not going to be deceived once they get here. Is that weird? We're not going to, I don't want you to be deceived when they're the one doing all the deceiving. And so all the cults, have you ever noticed if they in any way connect with what we know as Christianity, they always deny some aspect of the virgin birth, the physical thing regarding Jesus. Um, they deny all the things that have to do with his incarnation and everything that has to do 
with him being the God-man for eternity. And so he warns that if you're going to be incarnational in your ministry, you just need to know there are going to be people out there who are going to be trying to run ahead of us with our message to twist it to their advantage. And um, if you don't believe that, don't do this, but I'll just take my word for it. If you wanted to turn on your TV or your radio this afternoon, you'd find them all over the place, and they're talking about all their stuff and selling all of their wares. And in the middle of all of it is a little bit of truth surrounded by, by a bunch of hokey-pokey. That's a biblical word, by the way. I don't know what translation you use, but it's, it's there. Finally, truth defines appropriate fellowship. So he says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him in your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now I'm going to say something here, and I don't want you to be offended by it or think that someone who may have said this to you before wasn't, didn't really understand what this verse means. I, I as a young Christian, was warned, don't let a cultist into your house. So there are cults out there. So, you know, we, and we've had them come to our house uh, as, a, as a couple. And um, it doesn't mean that in particular, that, you know, you're never to allow a cultist in your house. If you know the word of God and they can come in and you lock the door and hold them hostage as you share the gospel, that's okay. What he's talking about, where did all churches meet in the first century? They didn't have buildings like this. They met in homes. And a lot of times when there was someone who was the guest speaker who supposedly understood and embraced the apostolic doctrine of the church before the New Testament canon was completed, they would be invited to share. And what he's saying here is don't give these people an audience, especially when it comes to official assemblies like this. Never allow your church to go off track by spending all their time studying all the isms rather than staying focused on the truth that sets captives' hearts free. Almost like the people, you know, I mean, you know the illustration. How do they teach people uh, in the uh, Treasury Department to identify counterfeit bills? You got it right. You study the real deal. You know how it feels, you know the texture, you hold it up to the light, you look for the little fiber threads and everything else now that they put in there, the watermarks, and now they've got little um, micro-type things in it that uh, help you to know. Know the real deal, and you'll never have to be worried about taking something that is counterfeit. And that's what we're to do. And that's why it's great that in a missions month, we can focus on what it means to be incarnational in our ministry. We've talked about that when we've been here before in several different messages. But I think that this letter helps us to nail down the goal that God has through us, especially through this apostle, the last one living at the end of the first century, who's seen it all and done it all at this point. He's concerned, but he's also excited because he says, if you, if you will live out the truth based upon the godly love that Christ gives you, you will be able to impact your world in tremendous ways. I want to close with this illustration because I think it helps very well. It's not one I made up. It's actually by uh, Dr. Mark Dever. I know you have some of his materials in your resource uh, room here, and uh, he leads a, a very significant church ministry. But, but I heard him share this, and I've adjusted it a little bit for an application here. So let's say we're done today, and um, 
we've got plans for the afternoon. And we do, I think all of us have plans. But maybe you thought, you know, the beautiful colors, so we're going we're gonna to go and we're going to do a color tour. And you know what? It's such a nice day and we could make it there and back. Let's just go over to the lake shore somewhere. And so um, you decide that after Ken finally finishes, we're going to do that. And so before you even got here, You've already put into your smart device or GPS, whatever you have. We don't use real maps anymore. We just use hands, you know, for one. But we don't know how to get from here over here, maybe. So we put our GPS, got it all ready, all programmed. So all we have to do is get in the car and head on our way. And so we go out, we get in our car, we got the GPS going and um, turn the key. Nothing happens. Or we get two miles down the road and... And then you just grind to a stop. And you look at the gauge and you're out of gas. You know exactly where you're going. You know the routes to take, or at least your smart device does. But you don't have any gas to get you there. That's a picture of a Christian or a church that has all the knowledge that they could ever have. But the love of Christ is not there to fill their tank to demonstrate godly love to those around them. Well, let's flip it. Let's say you went to the bank yesterday, you took out a loan, you bought a tank of gas. You can get wherever you're going today as long as you don't go more than whatever. If you're one of our, our, our senators, you have an electronic vehicle or electric vehicle, so just don't go more than 300 miles to and from, so 150 each. You got all the fuel you need. But you go to turn on your smartphone, and the battery's dead. You got all the fuel to do that, but you have no clue where you're going. And frankly, I don't know what the split is around the world. I'd say there are a lot of people who have a lot of love to give, but they have no clue about the direction of that love. And that's how they get caught up in all these isms and ologies and cults. Some of us... We could leave here today, frankly, Orangeville, and we could be high-fiving one another all over the place. We got the truth. We know the truth. But it's not truth in advertising because, sadly, that truth is not dispensed with the love of Jesus Christ. Either scenario is wrong, and the only way that it'll work out right, the Word of God says in John, the Apostle especially says, is if truth is couched in and bathed in the love of Jesus Christ, which challenges us to live out the truth incarnationally. So we've got a big, we've got a big task ahead. I, I know that we're going to stop at a restaurant and eat lunch on our way down to Ohio to do the memorial service for my first Sunday school teacher after I came to Christ as a high school student. Uh, he went to be with the Lord this past week. Um, so how does truth and love go into walking into a restaurant. Well, maybe by the way that my life and Sharon's life are a reflection of Christ, even though lines are long or things are delayed or someone in that little area, gathering area, looks at us and says something snarly because maybe they still believe you should be wearing something over your face. There's a lot of people that recommend that to me, and I don't know how to take them in that, but... uh, or it might be at work when we have a disagreement over some system thing with our work, but 
You know what? That's not the biggest reason you're there to work, not to get a paycheck, but to represent Christ. Whatever it may be, I don't know. But we leave here now for incarnational ministry. And we better take a look and not just fly over this little letter that reminds us of what truth-based love is all about. And so, Lord, we know the task is great. We know that the task cannot be accomplished if it's just us trying to do it on our own, on our own whim, on our own opinion, on our own reserves. It can only come as you take the truth that you have ingrained into our hearts and lives, combine it with the love of Christ, which was first clearly exposed to us when we came to a saving relationship with him through his cross work and his resurrection. Both have to be there if we're going to truly represent to others who you are, Lord, and what that redemption means, not just for us, but for the lost and dying world around us. By your grace and for your glory, may that take place even in all of our lives here today as we leave this building to go out as your church to represent you in a lost and dying world. For your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.